Hey, welcome to the Book Club interview. My name is Scott Hollister, your host. Today's guest is Paul Moore, who wrote the book on multifamily investing. He calls it the perfect investment. So after graduating with an engineering degree and then an MBA from Ohio State, Paul started on the management development track at Ford Motor Company in Detroit. After five years, he departed to start a staffing company with a partner. They sold it to a publicly traded firm for $2.9 million five years later. Along the way, Paul was a finalist for Ernst & Young's Michigan Entrepreneur of the Year two years straight. Paul later entered the real estate sector, where he completed 85 real estate investments and exits, appeared on HGTV special real estate episode, rehabbed and managed dozens of rental properties, developed a waterfront subdivision, and started two successful online real estate marketing firms. Three successful developments, including assisting with development of a Hyatt hotel and a multifamily housing project, led him into the multifamily investment arena. Paul co-hosts a wealth-building podcast called How to Lose Money and is a writer for Bigger Pockets. Paul is the author of The Perfect Investment, Creating Enduring Wealth from the Historic Shift to Multifamily Housing. So without further ado, Paul, welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks so much, Scott. Yeah, pleasure. Uh, it was great bumping into the IMN event. Um, I love networking and uh, I've seen you speak at a couple events. So uh, it's, it's really great just to get together and chit-chat over multifamily. Yeah, you bet. It was a real pleasure meeting you there. Actually, I, I enjoyed talking with you more than anybody on that time. And uh, it, it, I mean, it was a big player. It was a big field of big players, wasn't it? And and yeah. uh, it was it was interesting. I love Newport, though. <laughs> yeah, a beautiful little town, a great venue, uh, doing the clam bake. That to me, that yeah. that networking after the event, that's they do a really nice job giving you time yeah. in between the the A and B, um, you know, areas. But uh, it right. was. It was. It was a big player event. So, yeah, <laughs> that's why you were there. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's why you were yeah. there. Yeah. Um, so you have quite the resume, and um, so you wrote the book called The Perfect Investment, and you created. You talk about creating enduring wealth in multifamily housing. Um, so, so what was the the reason to write the book originally? Did you have this passion in real estate, and you you wanted to share? You know, I've been schizophrenic, and that's why the uh, the resume looks like it does. I've I've been involved in all types of things. In addition to that, I've been a serial entrepreneur since I quit Ford Motor Company. I even had several businesses I've forgotten, and every now and then I remember. Oh yeah, I was involved in that wireless internet deal, wasn't I? Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of them were painful losses, and. So after developing a quasi hotel, quasi multifamily in North Dakota uh, a number of years ago, uh, we went and built a beautiful, and I mean top of the line Hyatt House Hotel. And it did not go well. We made a lot of mistakes. And as I look back over my career when I hit 50, I realized, Scott, I had been swinging for the fences. For years, I had been trying to hit home runs. I had been trying to, you know, as an optimistic entrepreneur, always believing the best and not really looking, you know, at what the downside might be or could I afford the downside if it happened. Mm -hmm. And so when I researched multifamily for just a little bit, I actually got into it because someone told me not to. They said, you know, hey, make sure you avoid that because that, that sector is way overheated. So I started researching as to why. And I realized the demographics were amazing. Uh, the long-term outlook was incredible. The stability, the downside risk coverage. And, you know, it wasn't necessarily hitting home runs like a ground-up development, but um, it had a tremendous profit potential and it was steady, stable, and predictable. 
And so I got so excited about it. I spent a year with a mentor and learned everything I could. And at the end, I thought, yeah, maybe I'll start writing some special reports for the website. And the special reports quickly turned into a, a whole book. Awesome. Yeah. No, it's, so let's jump right into the book. So you broke it into uh, 13 chapters. Um, so we'll start with the rest of the story. So can you give us the, the background on how you sold your company to a publicly traded firm? Yeah, so we had a, a PEO, which is a professional employer organization. It's uh, for those of those those of you who have heard of Administaff out of Texas, they're pretty big. Uh, we we outsourced uh, human resource departments for uh, small companies, and like I said, one of my clients had um, been the Entrepreneur of the Year for Michigan for uh, a previous year, and she said, "You're the perfect guy." So she nominated me, and I was actually finalist twice for that, and. Um, so we, a, a company out of another state said they really wanted a Michigan office. So they decided to acquire our firm and they paid us a ridiculous earnings multiple, something like 25, because they really wanted to get in to, uh, they really wanted to get into Michigan. And because uh, honestly, our, we had a great company, great customer service, but we were still kind of small. And so we sold the company and um, I decided, hey, I'm going to, I, I don't think I actually said I want to do semi-retirement, but it kind of felt that way. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of like, yeah, I'm going to do semi-retirement here at 35 years old. And uh, honestly, uh, Scott, I became a miserable person. I, we moved to the top of uh, a mountain in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia, my wife and I and two very young kids. And uh, I was living in a community of friends, people we invited to live there that lived nearby that we already knew. Uh, from Roanoke, Virginia, and um, honestly, that was kind of a, you know, they say you're surrounded by, uh, you become the five, like the five people you surround yourself with, and the books you read, and all that stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I just was, it was kind of a mismatch, so I became kind of a, not the best version of myself as a father, and a husband, and as an, uh, not an employee, but an entrepreneur, uh, I tried to start a nonprofit organization to do outreach to international students studying in the U.S., and that was really fun. These students could come ride a goat and milk a cow, or maybe it was vice versa. I can't remember, but <laughs> we grew, grew blueberry trees or, or bushes or whatever they grow on that died mm -hmm. and all this stuff. But it, it was actually kind of miserable. So a friend of mine um, moved from another state. And we decided to go buy a house on the courthouse steps for fun. And we actually made quite a bit of money on that first house. And that's how I got involved in real estate finally. Awesome. So was it the entrepreneurial spirit? Is that how you got bored in that early retirement and you can't really sit still? Uh, yeah, I was a highly driven. I don't think I really yeah. knew myself real well. I was very driven, highly you know, motivated type A personality. And the people that moved in uh, around us on this 140-acre property that we subdivided they were not that way at all. They were super chill, and um, it was just kind of not a great match. In fact, I wanted to do this um, international student weekends. Uh, I wanted to do it, uh, do one about every other weekend, and they were like, "How about two a year?" I'm like, "What am I going to do the rest of the year?" You know. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. No, that's interesting. So, so you talk about some of your wins and losses in the book. So, how did some of those losses shape you as an investor, and what was the most important lesson you learned over the years? Well, you know, I've got a book. Um, uh, I've got a lot of that in the book, I should say, but I've got a podcast called How to Lose Money. And uh, that is uh, a podcast that grew in many ways out of 
my own failures and then the entrepreneurs around me that I saw who failed and learned a lot through that. So I do think that the lessons from failure are often, I won't say always, but often many times more valuable than uh, the lessons we learn from success. And I certainly have found that in my own life. Um, I think the major lesson I learned was that thing about swinging for the fences. Mm. I mean, let's put it this way. Which one of these stories is going to be told in real estate investing clubs and in bars and on blogs? Uh, You know, the guy who buys a house to flip and then he finds out later it was he, it was commercially zoned and he, and he, you know, he does something and he goes out and he makes like four times his money back by selling it to a commercial developer or the other guy who, you know, works with his son quietly to a, you know, to acquire one duplex after another and then maybe four and then maybe 12 plex, et cetera, et cetera, and slowly grows as well. I mean, you haven't heard of a guy, but uh, I mean, the public hasn't heard of this guy, but there's a guy in Texas who slow, he started out with $1,000, a bonus from his airplane manufacturing um, repair job. Mm-hmm. And um, he uh, he took a $1,000 bonus, bought a duplex, he parlayed that to a what turned out to be uh, over just 22 years of just continually, quietly buying and selling one duplex and then a fourplex and then a 12plex and then a 20 and then he was up to like 170 when he finally retired recently. You know, those those you know, that guy was not swinging for the fences. Yet mm-hmm. in the end, he got the fences, you know? <laughs> a lot of other people that really try to put doubler I mean, if you go double or nothing long enough, you know, you might hit double, but you're going to hit nothing a lot. And when you do, what are you going to have left to double next time? Nothing. You'll have to start over. Robert Kiyosaki said it's great if you're a millionaire by 30, but if you lose it all by age 40, what do you got to do except start over again mm-hmm. at age 41? You know, it's it's not a great strategy to keep swinging for the fences. Yeah, well, that's some deep wisdom right there. So, you know, swinging for the fences, uh, um, obviously not a good long-term strategy, but is there something that, you know, you constantly think of that, you know, is there a shiny object that keeps pulling your attention? Do you have like a internal bell that kind of says, Hey Paul, slow down. Yeah. So Yeah, I do. Okay. Uh, for about the last four years, I've been saying no to everything that came our way. I mean, I, I hear from people on bigger pockets quite often. Hey, why don't you try this? Or have you looked at that? And somebody asked me yesterday, have you done senior living? And I know that's really profitable. And I actually looked at it, uh, years ago and a friend of mine made a fortune in it. But uh, I don't know anything about it. And I used to get irritated when these, you know, I talk to these larger investors and they say, sorry, I don't know anything about what you're doing, so I'm going to not do it. I'm not going to invest with you. And I'd be like, why? You know, but now I realize the wisdom in that. So, yeah, I I really do. Um, I have stuck with multifamily for the last four years. And as we'll talk about later or now, um, I have recently, through a very painful decision process, decided to add one more asset class to that. Awesome. That's great. So let's discuss commercial multifamily investing and then we'll, we'll parlay into the next step. Okay. So what are some of the barriers to entry when first starting out? There are huge barriers to entry to get into large scale commercial multifamily. Um, one is, I mean, one is the money. You have to have a very high net worth to convince a lender to lend to you. You know, Freddie Mac, Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae, you know, they have zero uh, foreclosures uh, from what I've heard. 
according to the Mortgage Bankers Association through a source that I completely trust, they've had zero or virtually zero foreclosures, defaults in the last three years nationwide. They are the best evaluate risk evaluators of multifamily mm-hmm. out there. And so it, they say, hey, you have to have a high net worth. Uh, you have to have liquidity to pay the loan off if something goes south. Um, or, you know, make payments for up to a year. Mm-hmm. You have to have, <clears throat> you have to have experience, voila, in multifamily. You can have $10 million cash and try to buy a $20 million property and they won't loan you the money unless they think you have the experience and the team to run it. Because again, they're very good at risk mitigation. Mm-hmm. So you've got to convince the lender, first of all. Uh, secondly, you've got to convince the seller. And to do that, you usually have to convince the seller's broker. Now, Scott, as you know, in the commercial real estate, in the residential real estate world, the residential real estate agent has to, has to present every single offer to the seller right up through closing. Not so in commercial real estate. They don't have to present any offers. They don't have to present an offer that they deem is from somebody that they don't think is going to close. I mean, the broker wants to know that this is going to close. They're looking for people who will put gas in their BMW and food on their family's table, and they're not going to mess around with people who they think are amateurs. So you've got a huge job convincing a commercial broker that you have the experience, the team, the wherewithal, the debt capacity to -hmm. pull this off. So you've got to convince them. Uh, Third, you've often got to convince um, investors because most people that go into this, you know, let's face it, you know, syndicate deals or or they pull together investors. You've got to be very credible. And people who have 50, 100, 200,000 to invest, hopefully they're going to be asking hard questions about your experience, your team, et cetera, et cetera. So it's an uphill battle to get Mm -hmm. into this. These barriers are really high. And, um, it's it's not an easy thing to just jump right into. Yeah. Now, any um, good tips that you recommend for the first couple of deals of establishing that relationship with brokers to, you know, come across as professional? Yeah, a great way. A lot of people are doing it right now are is uh, through partnering. Um, there's coaching. There's paid coaching. There's mentoring. There's partnering opportunities. They abound right now, um, mm-hmm. and that's what we did. We actually partnered with uh, our mentor and we actually uh, signed them up as our co-asset manager mm-hmm. on our first deal so that Freddie Mac uh, and the seller and everybody else would think that we were credible. And um, so by partnering with them, now we, we paid them $25,000 to learn the business and we spent mm-hmm. a year and it turned into a better part of two years mm-hmm. uh, actually following them around learning their business, learning their systems, their forms, their contacts, their attorneys, their lenders. And uh, it was an incredible experience, and I highly recommend uh, getting a mentor. I actually am writing a book on seven different paths into multifamily, and if you want, I can go through those seven real quick. Of course, yeah. All right. Your audience will be the first to hear this because the book's not finished. But. One is getting a mentor, like I mentioned, and that's actually, I I don't end up in the book saying all this is to say you need a mentor, but I really do think that for a lot of people, that's the preferred route to get into uh, multifamily investing. Another one is to get a job, 
Really? Get a job? Well, <laughs> uh, there are opportunities with property managers. There are job opportunities as commercial brokers or as uh, on the asset management team for larger companies. I know people uh, who are doing very well in multifamily right now who got in through every one of those three different routes. Mm -hmm. uh, a subset of the get a job route would be to go to college. Um, there are college degrees available in real estate. You know, Gary Keller, I see his book there behind you. Uh, Gary Keller went to, um, oh no, am I forgetting, the, the, the school somewhere south of Dallas anyway, <laughs> you'll probably remember. And he got a degree in real estate. And I know another guy who got into, um, uh, who got into real estate through a d degree in property management from Virginia Tech, of all things. And so there are definitely ways to do that. A third route to get in is just start big and just go for it. And that would be just to have enough money of your own to go out and buy an asset on your own, pull together your own team and try to pull it off. Some people can do this. They've got money from a family office, from inheritance, from an IT firm. I talked to an IT guy the other day who sold his firm. He's selling his firm for millions and millions of dollars. He could do this. It's very risky. And it means getting a very good team around you. But it is possible. Mm -hmm. So that is another route. Uh, a fourth route would be to be a deal finder. And being a multifamily deal finder would consist of finding deals for multifamily um, syndicators, having an inside track from a friend, an uncle, a neighbor, and saying, hey, here's an off-market deal. I'll bring it to you. I'll evaluate it. I'll bring you the deal. And all I ask is that you give me a seat at the table, you teach me the business, you let me put my name on the deal on my resume as you know being part of this deal. Mm. And people are doing that. I know a guy who quit his job as a medical doctor because he had found so many deals that this company just brought him in as a partner. And so uh, it's a great route. Uh, a fifth way, if I'm on number five, is to be a capital development specialist. And as you know, the SEC does not allow payments of commission for raising capital, but you can get a seat at the table. You can get a, a spot in the general partnership if you're very careful and uh, by raising capital. So if somebody raises all the capital for a deal or half the capital for a deal, uh, they should be able to get a partnership opportunity and, uh, you know, become a mentor, become mentored by that company. A sixth route is what I already mentioned, and that's the guy in Texas who went from $1,000 to $17 million. And that's a long, slow, painful path up the ladder of success from small to large multifamily. And my seventh way is to invest passively. Now, there are two ways to invest passively, and that is to be really, really good and thorough, picking the right syndicator sponsor and just trusting them and saying, look, they've got an incredible track record. I trust these guys. I'm going to invest in whatever they put in front of me. And say you put in $50,000 a deal. The other way would be to be more of an active passive uh, investor. And that would be to not only investigate and vet the sponsors, but to go out on site and vet every deal right alongside the sponsor. And that's a legitimate way to get in. Uh, the last passive route of the three passive routes would be to invest just with a REIT. And uh, you could invest with a REIT or you could actually invest small amounts through crowdfunding in uh, a variety of uh, different opportunities. So I'll take a breath. That's my seven <laughs> paths to multifamily mastery. Hopefully that helps. 
That's amazing, Paul. Thank you very much for that. And uh, you spoke about it in one of the later chapters. I thought that was one of the uh, best chapters in the book that, you know, of understanding and really vetting the, the person that you're going to be investing with and, and talking about integrity. And I thought that's very right. important. So, yeah. Yeah, it really is. There's so, so, I mean, you can't, if you can't trust the person presenting the numbers, then what good are the numbers at all? Exactly. Yeah, you know, it's just doing business with people with relationships, and and that's it's a small game. And once you understand right. that, and it'll be in it long term. So right. Um, so we're doing all this to build wealth. So um, what does you know multi generational wealth mean to you and your family? Great question. So what I love about commercial multifamily, and 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 I don't I don't think that you know you could strictly take what I'm going to say scientifically and prove that it's exactly right. But I've had enough experience to prove that it generally works out this way. Mm. Um, flipping homes is great. We made $24,000 on our first flip home that I, flip home that I mentioned that we accidentally kind of fell into at the courthouse steps. And we did like 60 or 70 after that. But where's that money now? It's, I mean, we spent it, we lived on it. And I know technically you could say, well, you could bank all that money along the way and you could do just as well as, with multifamily, but I've never seen anybody, not one person I've seen, and I've seen a lot of people do that. I haven't seen anybody bank that money and handle it right. But what I love about commercial multifamily and other commercial real estate investments is the opportunity to cascade up. And here's what I mean. You put $100,000 into an investment today, and let's say in year five, the syndicator, re, um, he refinances and gives you back that let's say they gave you 8% preferred return all during that five years. So you already got 40% of your money back and that's in the form of income. And then you, um, then they refinance, they give you 120% of your money back at that time. Let's say the, all your principal and 20% more. Now you've got 160% of your money, but you're still with most syndicators, at least not all with most syndicators, you're still in the deal. You still maintain your ownership and now you've got $160,000 back um, and 120000 of it in one day. You can go reinvest that with that sponsor or another one. And your ownership maintained, is maintained in that first deal. So now your first $100,000 is now split among invested, is now invested in two deals. And you can kind of guess where I'm going. Now, if that same process happens again, that money is now invested instead of in two deals, it's going to be in four deals. And if that is repeated again, you get the idea. And so that $100,000 can be like a tree that turns into, you know, I mean, it is not hard at all to see how that can become a million dollars of value in not all that long. Mm -hmm. And so it really is. I mean, imagine doing that for years and imagine throwing in 1031 exchanges, which we'll talk about later and imagine re you know handing all that property don't cash out but hand that property to your heirs when you die and the the basis is reset and the next generation starts out with zero tax liability in many cases there are limits to that and uh, they start over with a, a multi-generational fortune that you started out with only let's say a hundred thousand dollars invested it really is possible to do that passively it's powerful that's amazing. Yeah, no, it's 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 a good why and, and understanding that and building the wealth. It's it gets powerful pretty quick. 
So um, yeah. let's jump into some of the numbers. So um, you had some really good chapters on really understanding why you pick certain areas. So why are demographic trends important to follow when it comes to multifamily housing? Yeah, um, well, that's what uh, the, one of the reasons I got into multifamily. You know, in 1995 or so, the government, in its great wisdom, uh, maybe you're a fan. I'm sorry if you are, but um, the, and I am a fan. I, I love, I literally love and and appreciate our government in many ways. But I don't know that they always make the best decisions, and um, they um, they made a decision that everybody or a lot more people should own a house, and about 64 percent of the people in the U.S. that could own a house did at that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, that they basically passed laws that said if you can fog a mirror, you can get a house. And so the home ownership rate went up to 69.2% within a decade. And by 2005, people like my friend Jack um, had, you know, my friend Jack made about $40,000 a year. He bought a $600,000 McMansion in a small Jeez. Virginia town. Uh, in, you know, like one of those towns, you know, that where the houses were built, you know, a hundred Victorian mansion, a hundred years mm-hmm. ago, you know, he bought it for $600,000. That was his second home. He qualified for that mortgage with no documentation. How does this happen? Well, he made about one payment on that before it went back to the bank. And, um, that happened, maybe not that, that extreme, but stuff like mm-hmm. that happened all over the U S and so home ownership plummeted from 2005 to 2015, from 69% down to about 63%. Every 1% drop was a million new renters into the renter pool. But in addition to that, there were other people coming into the renter pool at the same time. Uh, And, you know, with the uh, slowdown, with the economic crunch we were in, a lot of new apartments, in fact, virtually no new apartments were being built. So you had this growing supply and demand throughout the housing crisis. And so uh, multifamily has just really been the, uh, I guess you could say the beneficiary since then. If you look back over 60 years, uh, the income, you can see it growing, you know, like along a certain path uh, in the US and then, but rents are growing at like this much, much higher path. And that continued except for a very short slowdown during the uh, recession. Uh, That has continued to this day. There's gotta be a limit to that. But, um, you know, the multifamily is driven by the fact that there are people renting, right? And so I, when we were looking into this years ago, we looked at, okay, who's renting? Well, first of all, uh, baby boomers. Baby boomers are those built, born between generally 1946 and 1965. And though they're the smallest, and that includes me, the smallest group of renters, uh, we are the fastest growing group of renters. And statistics say when baby boomers rent, they never own a home again on average. Uh, A second group is obviously millennials. Now, millennials generally have record student debt. They generally don't see the point of buying a seemingly overpriced home to get tied down to a seemingly uh, egregious contract for 30 years that locks them into a certain neighborhood in a certain part of town when perhaps next year they'll have chances to uh, get better pay, better Mm. friends, better adventure across town or across the country or the world next year. Mm. And so millennials in general are very, they're they're renting 
a lot more than past generations. And that has continued, although the Wall Street Journal recently, you might have seen, said that that may shift. And so we'll see what happens there. A third very important group of uh, renters is immigrants. Uh, immigrants, much more than people born in the United States, tend to rent uh, more often and for longer. And so, and that group group continues to grow as a percentage of the U.S. population. And so, it would seem, Scott, that you could look at these three major demographic groups, look down the road for decades, and see that the birth rates and everything are supporting what we believe to be a continually strong multifamily market for years to come. Mm-hmm. Those are very important demographic trends, and I, I love how you're right on top of the data and and comes across as very professional in being an expert in your area. Um, so, Thanks. you know, this is another important topic that you discussed in the book, and I, I loved it. So, so why is diversity in an economy important to housing as well? Tell me more, tell me more about what you mean. So in terms of, you know, having, you know, multiple income and, you know, solid jobs in a, you know, a business of economy around the multifamily aspect as, as opposed to having, you know, one major large oh. employer. Yeah, absolutely. So we, I have a chapter in my book that was actually struck from the book because uh, my mentor said it was just way too much detail for the average reader. But uh, the uh, chapter talked about 22 different um, uh, indicators you want to find when you go into a market. And those indicators include things like positive net population migration. Um, I believe the U.S. population, I think, is growing at 0.8% per year. Well, you want to be in a city that has a much higher growth than that, meaning that the uh, net people moving into the area is much higher than the people moving out. Uh, Another thing you'd like is a diverse economy. Like you said, you don't want it all tied to one employer. Um, If it was tied to, let's say, the auto industry and the auto industry had a huge downturn, that could be really bad for your business. There's there's an outside force that's affecting your business that you can't control. We like, and this is personal preference, and a lot of people would disagree with me on this, but um, we like to be in towns that are not dominated by military. Uh, Virginia Beach, one stroke of the pen from a government official could potentially knock out, you know, a significant percentage of our renter base and the economy in general in that area. So we like to shy away from those areas. We like low unemployment. We like, um, uh, you know, education government, a lot of business in the area. Those are the kind of areas we're looking for. Mm -hmm. That's great. Now, you know, chapter five has to be one of my favorite uh, titles to to chapters, and it's uh, Toilets, Tenants, and Trash. So uh, do you personally deal with these when, you know, it comes to fractional multifamily investing? You know, um, you want to get me going. Um, (laughs) uh, I'm writing an article for Bigger Pockets right now about my uh, first – single family trailer that I owned. I actually have owned three over the years and I have laughable, I guess, laughable horror stories which eat with each one of the three. Now, I actually think owning mobile home parks is a great investment and I'm all for it. And I think I'll be involved in that at some point if, uh, you know, if multifamily continues to be as difficult as it is. But owning individual mobile homes, trailers is it's a, it's a nightmare. And so that, that title, I think that chapter five is called Toilets, Tenants, and Trash. And it talks about, 
the uh, challenges of being a landlord yourself and whatever level you're in at. You know, the guy in Texas who went to 17 million, he was, he self-managed every property, he and his family. I went there and I realized, wow, a lot of people here have the same last name. It's kind of crazy. And I realized they were all family. And, uh, but he managed himself, but it is a almost certain path to burnout. Uh, people that manage their own. I talked to a guy two days ago in Indiana, I think, and he had no Michigan. He had, um, one duplex and he lived in half of it and he was pulling his hair out managing the other half and he later bought a self-storage facility and he said this whole facility is easier to run than that duplex (laughs) (laughs) and uh, i'm I'm like you're kidding and that's kind of hard to believe but that's what he said so i tell you being your landlord yourself whether it's on a few units or a whole bunch uh, is really, really tough. One of the hard things about it is, Scott, I know you and all your listeners are really, really nice people. And I'm generally a nice guy. The problem is tenants realize that. Mm-hmm. And you can imagine where it goes from there. I've literally got texts from a tenant in this mobile home that I still have, oh, who <laughs> texting me saying why they're not paying their rent for the second or third straight month. And, oh, can I borrow $1,000 for my transmission? Seriously. Oh, jeez. I think it's hard to be an owner and an operator. I think it's better yeah. to have a bad cop in the middle. That's yeah. what I'm saying. Find a advice. great property management firm, whether you have two units or 200. Now, one caveat to that, Scott, I think it's good for everybody to go through this. And mm-hmm. so if you're first getting into the business and you're buying your first few duplexes or whatever, I think it actually could be a good idea to go through it mm-hmm. so you know when you're being lied to later. Smart, wise man, some wise advice. Sounds like you have some uh, experience behind that, so <laughs> appreciate it. Uh, we can do another show. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sounds good. Um, so let's talk about uh, the recipe for investment success and market selection, chapter six and seven. Um, and this is a very important thing, and I've always struggled with this. I know other people struggle with this. So how do we not fall in love with some commercial real estate and look at it objectively? You know, um, I heard a very famous person who, uh, back when my 20s, before I ever dreamed about investing in real estate, uh, who said the number one rule is do not fall in love with any real estate at all. Make sure you don't fall in love. The problem is if you fall in love with real estate, uh, with a particular piece of property, you can actually stop looking at it objectively, and we all know how that can be. Uh, I mean, you know, you're married, right, Scott? So I'm just kidding. But <laughs> seriously, it, it's easy to look through a lens of love and let that emotion blind you to the stats, mm-hmm. you know? So fall in love with the numbers, not mm-hmm. the property. Um, I, uh, I was in love with Cape Cod Homes about 2001. I just loved the style. We found a Cape Cod home that... Yeah, it was in a declining part of town, but that was no big deal. And I thought, who would not see the beauty, the sheer loveliness of this home? And so we bought it to fix it up and flip it. And uh, nobody did. Nobody saw the Mm. beauty of that home the way we did. I've still drove by that house a few times, and I'm still kind of, oh, that's a beautiful home. And, And it was surrounded by not great homes. And, um, you know, we lost money on that. It was a very painful lesson. So don't fall in love with properties. Fall in love with numbers. Great. Um, you know, in terms of, you know, moving from that landlord to an operator. So, so how can we become great operators of a multifamily housing? 
I think the number one thing to do is have great market selection. Mm-hmm. And the number thing, two thing to do is do a great job vetting your property manager and then staying in close touch with them as the asset manager. I think that's about two thirds of your success in any business is picking the right market, the right submarket, and the right property manager. So that's my quick summary answer for that one. I love it. So anything uh, new tips this year that you're currently doing to improve as an operator, such as, you know, communication or anything like that, education? Well, I mean, we, um, you know, we, you know, the property managers like to tell you, you know, we want to make sure that uh, we're, we have our ducks in a row and the vice president of the property management firm is, is here on site when you come, you know, and, and what they're saying is please don't drop in. And uh, so uh, yesterday, actually, my business partner dropped in at uh, a property we have in, um, well, I won't say where in case anybody's listening to it, but uh, he dropped in on a property in a different state and he found some great news and it was really great to see the improvement in that property. But he also found some things were really troubling and it appears even that somebody was lying to us. You know, we were eight hours away in another state and they didn't think we'd show up to find out that certain things weren't done that they said were done. And so, um, I think that's, you know, kind of an obvious thing to do. Um, just stay on top of things and don't ever think that the property manager, no matter how good they are, don't ever think that they're going to care as much as you, you invested your own money, your own time and your own investors into this. Just stay on top of the property manager. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, pivoting a little bit into chapter nine and you talk about taxes and real estate. Um, so what's the difference between a CPA and a tax strategist? <laughs> I think I might've made up that term. I don't know. So I was in Minot, North Dakota. We were building this beautiful Hyatt hotel and my business partner turns around. I mean, he actually had all the money and his name on the deal and everything. Uh, thankfully for me. And, um, um, he, uh, turned around to me and he goes, you know, I wonder if we should own this land and lease it to the hotel. Or I wonder if maybe the hotel should be in a separate LLC from the land. We don't know what we don't know. I wish we had a, he said, we don't know if we're paying way too many taxes or what. I wish we had a tax strategist. So I went and Googled that and I found an article by a guy and the article was why you need a tax strategist. So I actually hunted down the guy he talked about in his article and we hired him ourselves. and I've recommended him to literally two or 300 people who have asked me since. But <clears throat> that guy in the article said he was paying an average of 120000 a year in taxes. And when he um, got the tax strategist, well, actually what happened is he went to his CPA and he said, hey, have you heard of cost segregation? I think it was cost segregation at least. And, and the CPA goes, yeah, sure, I know about it. He said, well, why aren't we doing this? I've been doing this for 10 years and I'm paying all these taxes. Why haven't I done cost segregation? He goes, well, you never asked me to. <laughs> and he's like, wait, wait, wait. I, I hired you to be my CPA. He goes, yeah, you hired me to be your CPA, your taxes, do your taxes. You didn't tell me to help you run your business. And so he fired that guy after all those years and he hired a new CPA who was super savvy, super strategic. And actually, he said, as of the time of this writing, he hadn't paid any taxes in about a decade, though he had amassed millions of dollars in real estate. And so there's lots of legitimate ways to avoid taxes in commercial real estate. In fact, a friend of mine in California said, if the American public knew 
how little we pay in taxes, there'd be another tax revolt. <laughs> it's amazing. Now, uh, we mentioned this earlier. So finding a deal partner, um, you know, chapter 10 discusses this and it's a very important topic. And like I said, I think you answer this really well in the chapter. So what do you recommend when it comes to integrity and ethics? You know, I mean, go to Vegas, roll the dice. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> Uh, kind of back on the the risk thing. I, I, I of course, by the way, I want to I want to be clear. I think it's great to swing for the for the fences. I'm going back to that mm-hmm. in your personal relationships, in in loving other people. I think we were created to to love and be loved, and I think you should swing for the fences in so many areas of your life. And I think it's great that Jeff Bezos swung for the fences, and that Steve Jobs did, and that Bill Gates did. I think it's great to do that as long as you know that you have a chance of losing uh, all of your capital. And I think as a sophisticated investor, you should only allocate a small percentage of your portfolio and only allocate what you are willing to completely lose, as if you were putting it into a fireplace and using it as kindling. So to be clear on that, I think that that is you know, uh, I think that is a, a way, a smart way to invest. And I say that because if you agree with me, Make sure the deal partner that you partner up with agrees with you. Paul Samuelson, the first Nobel Prize winner in economics in the U.S., said uh, investing should be more like watching paint dry or watching grass grow. If you want excitement, take $800 and go to Las Vegas. And we need to find deal partners. At least I would recommend that you find deal partners. If that's how you feel, make sure they feel the same way. If you want to check out their integrity and ethics, Google them all over the place. Match up their name with SEC, SEC violation, uh, bankruptcy, fraud. I mean, Google all kinds of different variations. Check them out. I mean, have somebody, I mean, if you're going to invest $50,000, it's worth it to pay for a LexisNexis search. Make sure there's no fraud, no criminal uh, background, no bad history. Fly across the country for goodness sake, to meet with them, make sure you take them out to dinner, see how they treat the waitress, Mm -hmm. see how they treat uh, the different people in their path, see about how they talk about other investors, Uh, see how they talk about their partners, Um, try to see what type of person they really are. And I can tell you when I recently decided to invest in another asset class outside of multifamily, because of the difficulties right now in finding uh, good, profitable deals. Uh, I went to uh, this guy's town. I actually met him for lunch twice, spent the day with him, saw what he was passionate about. I asked him lots of questions about his family, found out that he actually, he and his wife actually had gone to a China and adopted extremely disabled children and were paying uh, apparently out of pocket for these very, very expensive surgeries to have these children, um, you know, one child who had his feet turned backwards at birth. um, And he was, uh, you know, he had his feet, like he had to do this expensive surgery for this 18 month old. But he, you know, he called this child his son and he's gonna, you know, have this child in his home from now on. And he really did, he had pictures. (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. I mean, validate who these people are because who they are, uh, when they're not on stage, so to speak, is who they really are. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, it's, it's, those are some amazing tips, and uh, I hope you know people follow that. That's it's just just solid advice. You know, you, you can't you. go wrong with that advice. Um, and this is something I, I love when uh, you know a teacher or someone who writes a book, you know, starts the story. And you had this uh, story in Texas terms, some you know looking for the flies and swatting them. So you want to tell listeners real quick about that that story. In 2010, my son and I were making a cross-country trip trying to figure out his future career. I think he was uh, 17 years old. In fact, he was. And by the way, he's killing it now, flipping uh, Timberland in southwest Virginia. He's doing very, very well. I'm really proud of him. But uh, we were going across the country, and we met a – we were talking about maybe investing in oil and gas. And so we met this uh, cowboy uh, in Round Rock, Texas, I think it was. Uh, west of Austin, and um, he uh, he put his feet up on the, the the desk, and he said, "Yeah, he said you can bring in a geologist or a deal person can bring in the best deal in the world. They can pull all the numbers, all the geological reports. Everything looks perfect." And he said, "If I see a fly buzzing around, I'm going to show that man the door." <laughs> and I said, "If you see a f- what?" And he said, he said, he said, I know if there's a fly buzzing around, there's some BS down below. And what he meant was, he said, if I see anything, if I sense anything in my gut that doesn't add up, then I'm going to show that man the door because he said that I can't trust him back to, you know, you can't trust the numbers if you can't trust the person. Mm -hmm. And he said, um, he just, I mean, you know, uh, the modern studies are showing all these different ways, Scott. You know, we can, I guess our, our, our brains can calcu- do 40, tri- 40 quadrillion calculations a second. Well, our brain can figure out all kinds of things about other people that we don't consciously know. You know, the way they move their eyebrow uh, combined with where their left elbow was. I'm being a little silly, but you get yeah, the point. Yeah. Your brain knows. And that's why I think if I can be a little sexist here, I think women are way better than men on average in picking up these signals and knowing if somebody else is honest or dishonest. I've had my wife say, stay away from that guy. And she turns out to be right almost every time. And so, um, if your brain, if your gut actually is telling you something's wrong, but your brain is saying, but, but, but I've got a chance to make a million dollars here, run away. Mm-hmm. Even if you're wrong, it's better to err on the side of caution if you're going to invest your own time, money, or reputation. Solid advice again. Yeah, no, it's, it's great. And, and before we wrap things up, uh, I want to ask you a few bonus questions. Um, All right. So, I love it. So your, your podcast title, I have to ask you about it. So how to lose money. So, uh, you know, why did you end up calling that? You know, I used to go to this father-daughter retreat in Georgia. I went seven years in a row with my daughter. It was at this beautiful retreat center. And every year these great fathers would get up and they'd talk about what a great father they were and they're great kids and their great life and all this. I, I sound sarcastic. I don't mean to be there. These were in general, a lot of great guys. Mm-hmm. But every year, they never mentioned any failures or any shortcomings. And I sensed the mood among the guys, the fathers at these tables, because I had friends who were, um, you know, in that group. And they'd be just like, man, I'll never live up to that. <laughs> I'll never be able to do that. 
and they've got the perfect family. My daughter actually started daydreaming that she could actually be a child of the, the main speaker's family and how exciting and fun that must be. And um, <laughs> so I started writing reviews and I would just challenge them. I'd be like, guys, everybody has shortcomings. Everybody has struggles and failures. Would you tell us about those so we can have some hope? And nobody ever did. So one time somebody raised their hand and they asked this panel of men up there. They're like, hey, we've heard about all these great things you guys are up to and that's great. Um, tell us about what you struggle with. What are you, what are you, uh, what are you struggling with? What, where are you failing? And the men looked at each other like deer in the headlights and they, <laughs> nobody wanted to answer. Yeah. And one guy finally said, I'm struggling to communicate my vision to more men. Really? Anyway, uh, I, I still love these men and I still know one or two of them personally. And so great group, but I just think they failed to communicate their own failures. Mm -hmm. You know, Scott, if, and this is kind of, a, I don't know if it's a true story or not. I heard it was, but a, a guy was sitting in an airport and he, um, he was sitting there, uh, waiting for a flight and an Asian guy sat down next to him. And they started comparing notes. He told him about this great idea he had for a new company. He was swinging for the fences. And uh, he, uh, he said, hey, let me tell you about all this. And later, the Asian guy sent him a check for a million dollars to fund his company. And they both were happily ever after because that guy was very successful. Now, what do I do with that story, Scott? Do I go sit in an airport and look for an Asian guy to sit next to? No, I, I can't replicate that success. And, mm -hmm. you know, I can take that argument too far. But if I heard somebody's painful story of loss, failure, heartache, misery, where they went wrong, where they didn't do the gut check, where they didn't do due diligence, whatever it was, I can likely learn not to replicate that mistake. So mm -hmm. How to Lose Money is a wealth building podcast where we discuss defining stories of failure and how those stories led to people being better investors, entrepreneurs, business owners, fathers, husbands, etc. And so we talk about people's people who lose money, time, businesses or relationships on our show. Amazing. Just a wealth of experience of if, if some person's a failure and you can learn that ahead of time set you right up, you know, for success. So I, I hope so. <laughs> yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I want to talk another passionate topic. You know, I, I saw you speak on this in Pennsylvania at the Mid-Atlantic Summit, and I, I thought you did a wonderful job. Um, just really honest in a, in a great cause. So how did you set up your company to generate funding to fight human trafficking and rescue its victims? You know, a few years ago, when I when I heard about human trafficking, I realized hardly anybody knew much about it. But I did my own quick calculation because someone told me it was bigger than anybody ever dreamed. Do you know if you took the record profits, the record annual profits of Apple, General Motors, Nike, and Starbucks, added those together, doubled that number, they estimate that their annual revenues from human trafficking is higher than that. We're talking about modern day slavery. Scott, I want to believe that if I was alive in the mid 1800s, I would be an abolitionist. I'd be fighting against slavery. And if I was an adult 
in the the 1960s, I would have been fighting for civil rights. Well, we have a modern-day civil rights crisis. A modern-day slavery uh, is going on right under our nose. It's happening all over the world. Uh, Everybody in the United States uh, that I talk to says, yeah, we know of stories of it happening right here in our city. So I, uh, Wellings Capital, our company has decided we are going to do what we can to thwart human trafficking and rescue its victims. So I've been investigating different uh, organizations who do a great job fighting trafficking and others who do a great job rescuing and rehabbing, rehabilitating its victims. And so we want to donate, you know, about a billion dollars to that cause over the years. And I don't I don't fancy myself as somebody who's going to make so much money that I can personally donate a billion, but I'm trying to get other like-minded entrepreneurs, investors, uh, people with access to a large amount of funds to get involved to fight this horror. And uh, if you remember me when I talked about this two years ago at uh, in Pennsylvania, uh, I actually told a story about how it deeply impacted my own family. And so... Um, but we, one thing we're doing that's really exciting is I'm actually working with another very successful real estate developer and, uh, in Dallas. And he has put together an organization called Freedom Place. FreedomPlaceProject.com is his website. And he plans to build a billion-dollar office complex in Dallas. And he's going to take 100% of the profits from that. Now, of course, you'll pay the architects and the land and the building and all that. Mm-hmm. But he's going to take 100% of the internal profits from that, which he estimates is over $100 million, and donate it directly to fight human trafficking and rescue its victims. And then uh, we plan to actually use that as a prototype to mm-hmm. do that again and again around the U.S. So I've joined the board recently for that organization, and we are really excited about the opportunity to do this. Yeah, congratulations. That's a noble cause, and it, it looks like you're, you're, you're really striding and making improvements. So, congrats to Thanks. you. So, yeah, well, thank you so much, Paul. You know, um, I had an amazing time today. So many great little tips and, you know, education from your experience and, you know, all the other investors that, you know, you've interviewed. You know, it's you've, you've pulled this amazing network of education to, to help others. So, Thank you for that, and thank you for being on the show. And you know, before we kick things off, you want to tell the listeners where they can find out more about you and purchase the book? Absolutely. They can get the book on Amazon.com. And again, it's called The Perfect Investment with some really long subtitle. <laughs> uh, they can also uh, they can find us, and they can find more about me at uh, HowToLoseMoney.com or my uh, company website, WellingsCapital.com. That's W-E-L-L-I-N-G-S capital.com. Great. Thank you so much, Paul. Really appreciate it. Scott, I've really enjoyed this. I've never been on a a podcast where we went through the uh, chapters of the book and the different concepts. This has been really fun and my hat's off to you for doing this, man. Great job. Thanks, Paul. Really appreciate it. Thank you. All right, man. Take care. And that concludes our book club interview with author Paul Moore, who wrote the book, The Perfect Investment, How to Create Enduring Wealth from the Historic Shift to Multifamily Housing. Paul did such a wonderful job with this book. I think it's really it gets down to the the details over the 13 chapters. 
he, he just doesn't give you the, the how-to on the multifamily. He gives you the more important stuff, I think, is how to you know choose the right person to partner with, how to build a business correctly. And I think that's really something that you know people look, uh, look over. And he also speaks from experience, which I really like. He's been an entrepreneur for so long. And you know just going through so many cycles and, and learning past your failures and being able to teach them, uh, it, it's invaluable. So... Highly recommend the book. It's a great read. Feel free to check out all of Paul's blogs, his podcast, and his book in the show notes. Don't forget to like us on Facebook where you can stay up to date to the authors we're interviewing and the content we're putting out. My name is Scott Hollister, your host. That's it for this week, and we'll see you next time.